George Floyd's death was a tragedy, but was his life anything worth revering? And what are the consequences of the entire mythology of George Floyd for dangers in American streets? Tune in. Did, for example, a racist white cop actually murder a man called George Floyd, a civil rights leader, in Minneapolis on Memorial Day of 2020? Now, we've been told that that happened, told it relentlessly for more than three years. So at this point, we've been told it so much that pretty much everybody seems to believe it. And because everyone does kind of believe it, a small group of people has been allowed to make massive changes to American society. They include, but are not limited to, decriminalizing stealing, defunding the police, adding a new federal holiday to the calendar called Juneteenth, the ceasing of hiring all white men in corporate America, and of course, significantly, they also sent a cop called Derek Chauvin to prison for more than 40 years. He would be the racist white devil who murdered George Floyd. But the question is, did he actually murder George Floyd? And the answer is, well, no, he didn't murder George Floyd. And we're not guessing about that. We know it conclusively, thanks to a new court case now underway in Hennepin County, Minnesota. The case was brought by a prosecutor there called Amy Sweezy. She's suing her boss. So the case is not actually about George Floyd or Derek Chauvin, but it tells you an awful lot about both of them. In her deposition, which you should read, Amy Sweezy describes a conversation that she had with the county medical examiner, Andrew Baker, right after George Floyd died. Quote, I called Dr. Baker early that morning to tell him about the case and to ask him if he would perform the autopsy on Mr. Floyd. Sweezy recalls all this under oath in the deposition. Quote, he called me later in the day on that Tuesday and he told me that there were no medical findings that showed any injury to the vital structures of Mr. Floyd's neck. There were no medical indications of asphyxia or strangulation. Oh. In other words, George Floyd, according to the official autopsy, was not murdered. He died instead of what we used to call natural causes, which in his case would include decades of drug use, as well as the fatal concentration of fentanyl that was in his system on his final day. So this was not a killing. It was yet another narcotics OD in a country that courts more than 100,000 of them every year. The medical examiner clearly understood that and in fact articulated it. And Sweezy explains. He said to me, she recalls in the deposition, Amy, what happens when the actual evidence doesn't match up with the public narrative that everyone's already decided on? And then he said, quote, this is the kind of case that ends careers. Derek Chauvin, former police officer serving 40 years in prison for murder, as explained by Tucker Carlson there. Now, uh, was his trial just? There's a, there's a lot of questions I think we need to answer. And, and the, the first one is, was his trial just? Uh, was it about the facts of the case or was it about politics and narrative? Was it about propaganda during that summer of BLM riots of 2020. And regarding George Floyd, uh, is he some, indeed some martyred saint as the ruling class, as the corporate media would have us believe? Uh, did he live a life that is worth revering? And that is not to say, by the way, that he deserved to die in the street. It is a very real human tragedy that he did die in the street while being subdued by the police and on a human level. Uh, we can recognize that for the sadness that it represents. But we shouldn't then also somehow transform George Floyd into some sort of heroic figure. Um, and if the police did act improperly, 
does it rise all the way to the level of murder? These are very valid questions that all of us should approach with uh, a dispassionate analysis rather than with emotion um, and propaganda from the left. And more importantly, if we have been told significant lies about this case, have those lies led to far more dangerous streets throughout America? To answer these questions or more and more, we have the perfect guest, Mr. John Lott. The founder of the Crime Prevention and Research Center, John Lott, who is a widely regarded scholar and author. John, appreciate you very much being on the Steve Cortez Show. Oh, thanks very much. It's great to talk to you again. You bet. So, yes, it is again. You were a guest many times on my radio show when I had uh, my Salem radio show in Chicago. And I've been a fan of your work for a very long time before I I knew you personally. Uh, Read your book years ago, More Guns, Less Crime. And I've been convinced uh, for a long time about the the quality of your of your insights. And so I want to ask you, you know, because you are an expert, I think you're most known for guns, but you're an expert on crime much more broadly. And I want to ask you specifically about some of the recent revelations regarding the George Floyd case and specifically the conviction of Officer Derek Chauvin. Uh, Are you of the view that Derek Chauvin got a fair trial in Minnesota? I don't even think it's a close call. Uh, It should have been handled someplace outside of uh, the Twin Cities area there. Uh, There were many threats that were being made. Uh, You had Congress people like Congresswoman uh, Maxine Waters went there just a few days before uh, the jury deliberated, uh, basically saying that there was going to be massive riots uh, in the streets there if uh, the proper decision wasn't made. And so you had people who lived in those communities having to worry that uh, there'd be a lot of violence if, in fact, uh, they didn't deliver a guilty verdict. Um, that's not what should have happened in that case. Um, my own belief is that anybody who actually listened to the case and and I spent time doing that, would have come away with the view that, uh, it wasn't murder, that the, uh, George Floyd was, had massive amounts of, uh, fentanyl in his system, basically more than twice uh, a lethal dosage that was there. Even though he was a drug addict, it's, he still would have been susceptible to the amount that he had. And, uh, and that there was no damage to his neck. Uh, there was no strangulation. There was no cutting off the airwaves that were there. Those were the county's uh, own medical experts that were saying that. So it wasn't really obvious to me how he could be uh, convicted for murder. Right. And do you believe that if there's ever a case that that uh, warrants a change of venue, that this was it, uh, given the the you know absolute tempest that existed in the Twin Cities following this death? I mean, there are lots of cases that should get a change of venue, but this was surely one of those cases. Uh, the riots that you had had there, the continued uh, threat of uh, additional riots. Uh, were things that uh, surely could have weighed, and I worry, weighed, actually did weigh on the jurors' minds that were there. And the fact that uh, they didn't get a change of venue is pretty astounding to me. Sure. And, you know, I want to get into, you know, I mentioned new revelations, and Tucker Carlson has done a particularly good job, I think, uh, informing the public of some of these new revelations, which are arising from a civil lawsuit, uh, which is ongoing there from one of the former prosecutors who was involved in the case, um, a, a woman by the name of Sweezy, 
Uh, there's a new article out in American Greatness, which is one of my favorite publications. I actually, actually post my own articles there quite a lot. And this one is by Roger Kimball, who I think is a superb writer and analyst. The George Floyd Jr. narrative unraveled. His demise reminds us that we live in a country governed by the rule of narrative. That is the title and subtitle of this article. And there's, there's a quote that I want to read for the audience and then get your reaction, please, uh, John Lott, because I, I think it's important. It's a longer quote, but I think it's all important here. Uh, new court documents expose the extreme pressure prosecutors faced in Hennepin County to charge Derek Chauvin and three other former Minneapolis police officers in the death of George Floyd. Several attorneys opposed charging the, quote, other three officers, and they withdrew from the case due to professional and ethical rules. Now, this is getting to the new revelations about this lawsuit. During her deposition, Sweezy, the prosecutor, Sweezy also discussed a revealing conversation she had had the day after Floyd's death when she asked Hennepin County medical examiner, Dr. Andrew Baker, about the autopsy. I talked to Dr. Baker early in the morning to tell him about the case and ask him if he would perform the autopsy on Mr. Floyd. He called me later in the day on that Tuesday and told me that there were no medical findings that showed any injury to the vital structures of Mr. Floyd's neck. There were no medical indications of asphyxia or strangulation, Sweezy said. He said to me, Amy, what happens when the actual evidence doesn't match up with the public narrative that everyone's already decided on? And then he said, this is the kind of case that ends careers. So it seems to me that if Miss Sweezy is being honest here in her deposition under oath, John, uh, that there is some really serious misconduct on the part of public officials in, in Minnesota. Your thoughts? Well, I agree. I mean, I don't think that there's any kind of new underlying factual information that's in that quote. I think it just confirms what people heard during the trial. But uh, it shows kind of uh, a consciousness there on the part of uh, public officials that they knew that uh, there was no murder that had occurred there. Um you know, that uh, George Floyd uh, basically killed himself by having the drugs that were in his system, that the officer didn't really have anything to do with that. So, you know, it's really unfortunate. You know, other things about the trial that came out were things like whether this was standard practice, whether people were taught that type of thing in the, in the patrols that they had. And then you had... Other officers, young officers whose careers were being destroyed, too, at the same time. So it's more uh, than just the one officer who was, uh, uh, you know, convicted of murder. And, uh, you know, it's really sad that uh, you have uh, public officials worrying about their careers uh, when they're doing things that they know are wrong here. Right. Let's talk about the broader implications, because, you know, of course, we should all be alarmed as, as Americans, as good citizens. We should be alarmed about any injustice. And I think there's a lot of injustice involved in this case and the conviction of Derek Chauvin. But it, it extended way beyond just this case and way beyond uh, the Twin Cities and became you know, very much a national issue because, of course, the BLM riots, uh, which rocked American cities throughout right. the summer of 2020, you know, flowed directly from this case. So, you know, what is yours as an expert on crime? Uh, what is your view on the on the broader implications? You know, what what was the destruction done beyond this case throughout the country because of some of the myths that were believed about this case? Well, I mean, it's done huge damage to the country. It's not just the two billion dollars plus in property damage that occurred from the riots, but you had changes in policing policies across the country. You had defunding the police. You had 
uh, district attorneys who were refusing to prosecute violent criminals. Uh, you know, I can't get into the minds of the judges that uh, during COVID that released large numbers of inmates from local jails, but who knows if it played into that. I mean, uh, it never really made sense to me why in some of these urban areas you'd have 50% or even two-thirds of the inmates being released. Uh, we're talking about young people, you know, 18 to early 30s, overwhelmingly. These are not people that were susceptible to COVID in any way, uh, and yet they were being released. Um, and you had bail reform uh, being pushed. All these things, you know, to one degree or another, were probably uh, influenced by those events. You had national holidays, Juneteenth, uh, being set up as a result of this. Uh, so it had it had many impacts on this. It may have even affected the presidential election. We had uh, an election that was decided by just over 40,000 votes. Uh, it was extremely close. Uh, you know, you switched those 40,000 votes in three states and you would have had a different president that's there. And so, you know, it's uh, presumably the reason why a lot of people were funding uh, the BLM riots was that they thought that it was going to have an impact on uh, on politics uh, that were going right. on. So, you know, this this probably had huge ramifications, and unfortunately, it was uh, uh, overwhelmingly based on a lie that was there. Right. You know, you mentioned uh, the presidential race and Kamala Harris, who of course is now vice president, but she was then candidate. For the vice presidency, following she, the, she um, got she raised funds and get for uh, in prisoners to be released from prison, people that exactly engaged right. in these riots. I mean, you had things yep. like the Laf- people don't remember. Uh, you know, everybody talks about January sixth, but uh, you know, about six months or so before that, you had had uh, the Lafayette Square riots that were there, were something like one hundred and twenty. Uh, police officers and Secret Service agents were were severely injured. You had people scaling the White House fence. You know, the president had to be taken into a secure area there because the Secret Service were worried that people would break through the fence that were that was there. Uh, you know, it's uh, the media though covered that. Uh, you know, the the church, the famous church, was burned. Uh, you had all these things. These lies coming out of that too, you know, that somehow Trump had cleared uh, the square so he could go and have a photo op and things like that. So, I mean, it's just kind of lies piled on top of lies. You know, the reason why they had cleared the square was because the Secret Service uh, was upgrading the fence because uh, they were worried that the fence wasn't secure enough to keep a large scale riot from from going over the fence that was there. but, you know, it's kind of if you hadn't had the original George Floyd and maybe they would have had some other reason for going and doing things like the Lafayette Square riot or whatever. But, um, uh, you know, maybe not. And maybe history would have been very different in many ways. Right. And, you know, specifically to Kamala Harris, I think this is important, by the way, because, you know, not only is she the sitting vice president and, you know, a heartbeat away from being the commander in chief of the United States. Uh, but she serves alongside a, a very infirm, very elderly president. And so the idea that she could be president is not at all far-fetched, uh, either in this current term or if Joe Biden wins re-election. Re- I happen to believe that it's actually very likely that she would become president of the United States if Joe Biden does, in fact, 
get a second term. I certainly hope he's not going to, and we'll do everything I can to prevent that. But nonetheless, uh, this is a dangerous radical, um, this woman who could easily be president of the United States. And, you know, specifically on that Minnesota situation, she gave to the Minnesota or she donated and solicited donations for the Minnesota Freedom Fund. And among the dangerous criminals who were freed by that fund includes uh, a, a man charged with attempted murder of police. Uh, so these were not just, you know, folks charged with minor crimes. These, these are incredibly serious, violent crimes uh, who were set free with the help of Kamala Harris. And so, you know, again, I think that we need to be cognizant that the George Floyd, Derek Chauvin case goes way beyond uh, just that that local instance, you know, or way beyond just those two. But let me ask you, John, I want to ask you more broadly about the work you do, if we can pull back uh, for a moment, because, you know, I, I'm a huge believer that in politics, there's way too much sloganeering and we need a lot more data and evidence. And that is really where you live. Uh, you are such a uh, an expert at, at data analysis. Um, and by the way, I want to give you a quote uh, that I'm sure you're aware of, the late Milton Friedman, who a lot of folks in our audience will know, the great free market economist. He said this about you. John Lott has few equals as a perceptive analyst of controversial public policy issues. So pretty high praise from the Nobel laureate, Milton Friedman. Um, how is it that you decided on this path of making sure that that public policy prescriptions all be data based? How did you how did you end up here? Well, I mean, I have a PhD in economics. I've kind of always been empirically based on these things. One can often think of arguments that can go either way. And the only way you can figure things out is by ultimately looking at the data uh, on these types of questions. I know my views on many issues have changed substantially from when I started working on things. Um, you know, gun control is just one example of where my of, of a place where my views have changed uh, significantly over time. But you know, you have to you have to go and look at the data uh, on these things, and that's what I've always tried to do. Okay, I wasn't aware of that. So, were you in favor of gun control at one point? I was probably kind of in the middle of uh, the gun control debate. Uh, I'd done a lot of work on crime. I'd been chief economist at the U.S. Sentencing Commission in Washington, uh, and I'd published a number of papers on crime, but I hadn't been interested at all in uh, the gun control issue. Uh, I only kind of got into it by accident. Uh, I was teaching a class at the Wharton Business School dealing with crime, and I made the mistake of telling the students that we were ahead in the syllabus. And I had a couple of students come up to me after class and they said, well, we realize this isn't quite uh, on topic for the class, but given if we have extra time, would you mind giving a lecture on gun control? And I said, well, you know, I guess so. Uh, it, but it kind of forced me to look more carefully at a lot of the existing research in the area. I'd read some of the papers there uh, previously and uh, had found them wanting, but I kind of assumed that there was other better research out there. But when I forced myself to kind of prepare for the lecture and look through papers, I was pretty stunned by how poorly done the existing research was at that time. And when you're a researcher, you do research for one of two reasons. Either one, you have a new idea that nobody's had, which has like been my 95% of the research that I had done, or uh, you simply can do a better job than people have done. And, uh, and this kind of fell into the second category. In fact, because of that, uh, you know, so like previous research would have looked at 31 counties from the United States. 
you know, there are 3,140 counties. I don't know how you pick 31 counties from uh, 3,140 counties. So I was putting together a data set that looked at all the counties in the United States for all the years that the data was available and trying to account for literally hundreds of other factors that could affect crime rates. And uh, I almost stopped about six different times because I just didn't find it very interesting. And, um, and also I wanted to account for like 13 different types of gun control laws. And, uh, when, um, uh, anyway, when, and when I finally finished it, it was only by accident that it kind of got the attention that it did. There was a reporter, uh, actually I was working with a, uh, a graduate student in Chicago named David Mustard, uh, who put together a lot of the data. Anyway, I got a call from a reporter at USA Today named Dennis Kushan. I'd gotten to know Dennis a little bit when I was chief economist at the U.S. Sentencing Commission, and he would call me up every six months or nine months or whatever and ask me some questions. And he called me up, asked me some questions. Um, this is back in August 96. Uh, and uh and at the end of the conversation, he said, oh, by the way, what are you working on? And I told him about this paper I just finished. And then the next week, it was on the front page of USA Today. And uh, and then kind of a lot continued after that. So, right. But, uh, but it was only kind of by accident that I kind of got involved in this debate. And uh, I've always stayed involved in it, which is pretty unusual because most of my work, I do a little bit of work in an area and then I find something else of interest is simply because I've been a lot engaged in a lot of academic debates, but I've never been involved in a debate that's had so much uh, misinformation uh, involved in it, uh, both in the media and in terms of uh, academic biases. And it's kind of forced me to stay in it uh, much longer than I would have guessed. Sure. Well, uh, our society has benefited from you staying in it. And if it was an accidental uh, uh, event that first got you that kind of promotion, uh, it's certainly a fortunate accident, I would say, for our country. I want to ask you, you mentioned that you taught at Wharton. Uh, your academic credentials uh, are incredibly august. Uh, you, you've you taught at, at Penn. Uh, you've either taught or done research, been associated with um, you know, a, a very esteemed group of universities in the United States, including the University of Chicago, Yale. Your PhD is from UCLA. Uh, do you worry, though, that, uh, you know, could a if there was a junior or younger John Lott now, uh, could that researcher uh, survive and thrive in those kinds of institutions with with the kinds of views that you hold? Is that possible or are these places too politicized and too dominated by narrative now? Yeah, I don't think I don't think there's somebody like me that could have made it through. I mean, my views, as I say, have changed a lot over time. I was a registered Democrat up until 1994. But even then, <clears throat> I think it'd be impossible. Uh, you know, the thing is, when I started out, uh, I'd say uh, like 60% of economists, academic economists were Democrats, 40% were Republicans. Uh, as about, I don't know, about 15 years ago, I think it was like 12 to one Democrats to Republicans in academia. And uh, and the thing is, you look at something like law schools, I don't know, maybe 15 years ago, there was a survey of the top 100 law schools, and it was like 93% were registered as Democrats, 4% were registered as Republicans. And what I try to explain to people is that even those numbers understate the imbalance. 
And the reason why they understate the imbalance is because uh, you can be such an, you have to have super majorities to get tenure, uh, often around two thirds or something. And uh, you can be a sufficiently nutty left wing Democrat and so nutty that you alienate a third of the Democrats and you'll still get tenure. But if you're a Republican, you have to be able to get two thirds of the Democrats to vote for you. And and the problem is, is that tenure uh, actually works uh, to stifle uh, diversity. You know, you think, well, once you get tenure, you can do things. But the thing is, the other faculty there know they're stuck with you for life then if they right. give you tenure. And so they look for any little tiny signal on what your views might be. If you're not strongly in their camp, uh, then they go and they vote against you. And uh, and so, um, you know, it's it's unfortunate. When I first came out, uh, there were a lot of liberals uh, in academia, but you had basically two groups. You had people that had come of age before the Vietnam War and those who came of age after the Vietnam War. The ones who were liberal beforehand, they were much more open-minded. They kind of enjoyed more the process of arguing and debating uh, these types of things. The ones who came of age afterwards were more doctrinaire and just wanted to have people like themselves. I I became an academic because I enjoyed uh, the process of arguing and figuring out things and changing your views when you found out, you know, somebody else had a better argument on these things. Um, but uh, what, what I found is over time, uh, you had more and more people that just wanted to have people who were exactly like them in terms of views. Right. And, you know, it's not just... Uh, academia, too, you had pressures outside of academia that uh, kind of worked in one direction. So, for example, um, when I was at the University of Chicago, uh, I lost my position there because of uh, Mayor Daley. Uh, my book, More Guns, Less Crime, came out in May 1998. In November 1998, uh, Mayor Daley called up Hugo Sonnenstein, who was the president of the University of Chicago, and um, went through for, I understand for 45 minutes, all the wonderful things that the city had planned to work with the school on. And then at the end of the conversation, he said, but Lott's continued presence at the University of Chicago was going to do, quote, irreparable harm to the relationship between the city and the school. And two days later, I was in the dean's office and the dean was apologizing, saying I was probably the worst treated person in academia but that uh, they were going to have to let me go. And I said, you know, Dan, who's Dan Fischel was the dean. I said, you let me go in the middle of the school year, you're going to destroy my academic career. And I'm not going to go through the blow by blows that happened after that. But basically the bottom line was that if I promised not to talk to the media anymore, uh, they would allow me to stay there through the end of that school year. Um, I was had been doing constant uh, media uh, after my book came out, uh, and people I'm sure can go back and check up from uh, kind of June through November. Uh, I was doing constant stuff, uh, and then all of a sudden in November, I, I went radio silent. I was getting calls in January. I don't know if people kind of remember all the gun control laws that were being talked about at the time, but I was getting calls from uh, the Wall Street Journal, uh, the op ed editor. Uh, 
at the time, weekly almost, asking me to write an op-ed piece. I finally, in March, convinced myself that uh, they wouldn't have the nerve to fire me uh, for writing an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal. And so I ended up writing one in March, one in April, one in May. Uh, And then I went on to Yale. And then I had something similar happen there. I had, during my second year at uh, Yale, uh, I was asked by legislators uh, to testify in Hawaii on some changes that they had on registration licensing laws. And when I got back, I basically, I was responsible for killing uh, the bill there. And when I got back, uh, the two U.S. senators from Hawaii had called up the dean's office at the Yale Law School uh, complaining about me. And I was called into the associate dean's office and told that I wasn't going to be allowed to stay at Yale after that, the end of that year. You know, the, and I could go through other stories, but the, yeah. but the bottom line is, is that if somebody had, if a Republican politician had called up uh, either of these universities and complained and about some left-wing person, uh, it would have been a cause celeb type thing. Uh, The politician would have been told to go and jump in the lake. Uh, And uh, and the person would have been lionized by the other faculty members for having irritated and upset a Republican politician. Well, unfortunately, I'm not surprised. Uh, it's it's terrible that that happened to you, but I'm not surprised. And I uh, have have advocated for some time now, and I, I hope to convince folks of this, uh, you know, of what I think is a sensible policy is that we need to forget about defunding the police. We need to defund these universities. And I think a lot of folks don't realize just how much we taxpayers do subsidize even private universities, uh, and in some cases, actually fund them far more than we do public universities. So I might I might do an entire Steve Cortez show episode just on that, on you know how much we are subsidizing the Ivy League, uh, for example, and, and subsidizing institutions which spread, I believe, a lot of a lot of uh, cultural but, and intellectual rot and pollution into our society. You know, I don't think most people appreciate exactly how much universities indoctrinate the students. It does it through different ways. I mean, one simple thing is uh, students don't know what types of issues, what types of counter arguments that are made that could be made. Um, you know, uh, so people can essentially provide a straw man on one side and the students mm-hmm. wouldn't have any way of really knowing because, you know, you're lucky to get them to read the material in the class, let alone do outside uh, extensive right. reading on something. Um, yeah. But it, it's more than that. Uh, not only do you have, uh, you mentioned Ivy Leagues, not only do you have the faculty overwhelmingly leftist. But you also have a policy, I believe, in my experience at uh, Ivy League and other universities, to go and admit students that are on the left. Um, and so when I was at Wharton uh, for two years, I was on uh, admissions. Uh, I dealt with graduate admissions. and But I still talked to some of the undergraduate admissions staff. And like one time I heard them talking about never admitting an Eagle Scout to the program, uh, undergraduate Wharton school. And, uh, and I was kind of shocked by that. I went over and I talked to him and I said, uh, you know, I don't understand. I mean, uh, you know, only 1% of scouts get to be Eagle Scouts. And they said, well, John, you have to understand, uh, the university is a liberal arts school. It's important that students be open-minded 
uh, and be willing to consider new ideas and what have you. Uh, but um, they, uh, we've discovered over time that Eagle Scouts just are very close-minded. <laughs> and, uh, and I said, you know, isn't drive and perseverance important? I mean, you, you only right. have this tiny percent that make it through and, and get to be Eagle Scouts. Uh, and they said, yeah, that's important. But it's also extremely important that we go and get people who are open-minded. I could go through and tell you other parts right. of the conversations we had, but sure. the bottom line is um, I think that they use things as proxies for political views. And when right. you go and you, you look at surveys of kind of entering students at Ivy league schools, what you'll see is like 75% or so of the entering students, maybe even 80% uh, classify themselves as liberals when they start mm-hmm. Often the percent that classify themselves as conservatives are like in the single digits uh, there. And I think what happens is twofold. One is uh, admissions people uh, can kind of put their thumb on the scale to help out and give a start in life to people who have similar views to what they have. Mm -hmm. And the second thing is, is that the few conservatives that you let in are going to have uh, all their friends are going to be liberals. Uh, all their professors are going to be liberals. And, you know, the idea is that at the end of four years, even the few conservatives that they let in, they can make much more liberal than they would have been sure. otherwise. And the, and the pressure on them, if they are students with conservatives leanings, I've seen this with, with my own children uh, in universities, that uh, there's, a, there's a real tension there and a lot of difficult choices for them because they want to get good grades. And if you care about your marks, uh, you might be a lot more willing to just be quiet about your conservative views because you won't get high marks from the professor. So a lot of pressure there. You know, regarding these universities, and I want to tie this into Israel and ask you about gun control in Israel, uh, given the horrific recent terror attacks there. Um, I, I think that for folks out there who don't realize just how toxic these universities are, I hope that their eyes have been opened by the by the really just blatantly pro-Hamas, pro-terror demonstrations, which are unfolding across American universities and, and particularly at the more elite, more select universities. But that brings me to that question about uh, Israel. You know, these these victims of these horrific terror attacks from Hamas, these innocent civilians who were slaughtered, many of them were defenseless. Can you talk to us, John, about uh, about gun control policies and, and gun policy in general in Israel and, and what mistakes have been made and what needs to be changed going forward? Well, Israel's gun control policies have changed dramatically over the decades. Um you have basically the period before and after 1972. Uh, you know, Israel obviously faced uh, terrorist attacks from even before they became a country. Sure. Uh, when they became a country and there would be a spate of increased terrorist attacks, the government would try to put more military, more police on the streets in order to try to protect people. Uh, but what they learned over time was that no matter how much money they spent, they simply couldn't protect all the targets. And that's because uh, these terrorists had real tactical advantages. So, for example, if I have a, a, a police officer on a bus and I have a terrorist, the terrorist can either wait for the officer to leave before he attacks or the terrorist can move on to another target himself that he doesn't see somebody around to protect people or he can try to take out the officer uh, because he knows once he takes out the officer, who's be the only person that has a weapon there, uh, they'd be able to go and have free reign going after other people that were there. In 1972, uh, they started allowing civilians to be able to go and carry. 
because they realized that they just couldn't cover all these targets. Mm-hmm. And and in the years afterwards, they had as high as about 14% of the adult Jewish population being able to go and carry. And that made a huge difference. Uh, you know, nationwide, outside of uh, California and New York, you have over 10% of the adult American population with a concealed carry permit, plus there are 27 constitutional carry states where you don't even need a permit uh, to carry. Um, You know, so you may be in a state like Pennsylvania, which has over 14 percent of the adult population with a permit or Indiana with 22 percent or whatever. And you may go into a movie theater or a mall or a restaurant or a grocery store. And there's an extremely high probability that somebody next to you at the table next to you in the restaurant is carrying, but you would never know. And the mm-hmm. same thing is true with, with terrorists. You know, they don't, they may be on a bus and they maybe have 30 people behind them. And if they try to take out um, the police officer, uh, they have to worry that one of the 30 people behind them, or maybe a couple of them who they haven't identified, might be carrying and may be able to take them out once they reveal their position trying to go after the police officer there. So it made the job of the officers much safer. The problem is, is that Israel's had the same debate about gun control as we've had here in the United States. Uh, You've had left-wing people like Soros and others spending huge amounts of money funding what I regard as pretty horribly done academic studies that are done about the risks of people having guns, uh, particularly things like suicide. And uh, as recently as 2022, uh, you only had about 3% of the adult Jewish population uh, still being able to legally carry a gun uh, for self-defense. And, um, you know, so, I mean, I, I only wish, uh, I mean, that people at the music festival had been carrying guns. Right. I only wish that some of these people who were cowering in these bomb shelters and just, you know, defenseless as they were waiting for the Palestinians to come in and fire machine guns or throw hand grenades into uh, uh, the small enclosed places that they were in, um, you know, were able to go and defend themselves. Uh, If even some of the people at the music festival had had guns, they at least would have slowed down uh, the attack and made it possible for other people to go and escape. They changed sure. the gun control, or some of them, after, uh, after on August 8th, uh, there was an emergency announcement uh, that changed it so that many people now are able to go and carry. I just wish that they had done it a week beforehand or a month beforehand. Right. Uh, but unfortunately, that wasn't the case. Well, and I certainly hope and expect that it will change going forward. But of course, we can't turn back the clock and and save those defenseless civilians who were who were massacred. But I think too, then to bring it back to the United States, uh, to those who oppose uh, the the responsible um, arming of citizens in this country, the constitutional Second Amendment right to self defense in this country, to those who are in opposition to that, uh, I would certainly point what happened in Israel as as a dire warning of why we need an armed citizenry here in the United States and why it is so important for us. And particularly in light of, you know, I mentioned the college campuses, of course, it's not just confined to college campuses. Uh, We've seen throughout America, large demonstrations, for instance, outside of Detroit and Dearborn, Michigan, 
unfortunately, there is, you know, it's a small population in terms of percentage of, of America, but it can still be very dangerous. There is a percentage of this country that is pro-Hamas, uh, that is right. pro-terror. And it is not at all a leap of logic to determine that at some point, if they support that kind of violence over there, that they might try to inflict that kind of violence here. And uh, But thankfully, with, as you mentioned, a highly armed citizenry, it would be a heck of a lot harder in the United States. And that deterrence is really key. So listen, last question for you, John. Can I just make uh, one quick comment yeah. on what you're saying? You, uh, you know, we just had the governor of New Mexico uh, put out an executive order banning uh, people with concealed carry permits being able to go and carry in Albuquerque or in that county, which is the most populous county in the state. Uh and, you know, she was pointing to uh, several cases where young kids uh, had been killed over the previous three months. Uh, but the problem was, it looks like they were all killed in gang fights uh, that were occurring by gangsters. Uh, you look at the behavior permit holders in uh, New Mexico. Uh, the last three years that we had data available uh uh, 19 or 2019 through 2021, there was a total, they had 45,000 concealed carry permit holders. They had one revocation for any reason over that entire three year period of time. And so as the Albuquerque police chief noted, preventing these law abiding individuals uh, from being able to carry would do absolutely nothing uh, to make people safer in terms of uh, preventing some acts of violence by the permit holders. And uh, and yet, you could, on top of that, you could go and point to cases where permit holders had stopped the very types of crimes that the governor was worried about taking place. And so, you know, it's just, and Israel's the same situation. You had, you know, the type of people who had permits in Israel were extremely law-abiding. They weren't the ones mm-hmm. that were causing problems. They were the ones that were stopping them when they were occurring. Right. So listen, last question, John, and I appreciate very much your time and your insights about California. And is, I want to know if this is a, a reason to be optimistic because California has had a three-decade-long ban on so-called assault weapons. I say so-called because even that term, I think, is an absurdity. But regardless, uh, guns like the AR um, were AR-15s were outlawed in California. And recently, federal court in San Diego ruled that that ban was unconstitutional and overturned this three-decade-long ban in uh, in California, much to the chagrin of Gavin Newsom, who you know predictably uh, is acting outraged and somebody who I think wants to be president and, and hates the Second Amendment. Is this a reason to be optimistic? Is there actually some sense coming out of the Golden State? Well, uh, Judge Benitez has uh, made a number of uh, what I consider excellent rulings. I was actually an expert witness in the assault weapons uh, case that was there. Um, And, uh, uh, you know, the problem is, is that even though uh, Benitez is very good on these things, uh, Democrats control uh, the circuit court in, uh, in California and the whole Ninth Circuit. And what's happened uh, on a number of cases, uh, such as uh, the magazine uh, ban that they have, uh, is that uh, you have en banc decisions where the Democrats have a majority, which have overturned that. And my guess is what's going to happen with the assault weapons ban is similar to what we see happening with the uh, uh, large capacity magazine ban. And that is 
uh, they will take it on bonk and they will sit on it. Um, you know, by the end of next year, Democrats will control about two thirds of the circuit and district court judges in the country. Um, by the end of the next administration, uh, Clarence Thomas will be 80. Uh, Sam Alito will be 78. You lose one or both of those individuals, you're going to have a very different Supreme Court uh, that's there. And what I think is happening to some extent is that um, uh, places where you have uh, the most extreme gun control are places where the Democrats solidly control the circuit courts in those areas. And they will be slow, uh, slow walking these types of cases with the hope that uh, if the Democrats win the next presidential election or you have a change uh, in the Supreme Court before that, uh, they'll be able to go and, and change the composition of the court. You have, you know, you look at the recent cases like Bruin, for example, uh, uh, the Democrats on this court are no different than the Democrats in the Ninth Circuit. Uh, they don't believe that there's an individual right to self-defense, let alone an individual right to self-defense with a gun. And uh, uh, if they got uh, control of the Supreme Court, I think they would dramatically reduce right. uh, or, or change uh, the rules that are that the court's been enunciating up till now. Well, um, and yet, yet another reason why we need to work really, really hard to win this presidential election and uh and you're so right that we've got some fantastic justices uh on the on the high court but they are they are aging and uh and not young men at all and so it's uh, number one pray for their health because they're incredible people but number two because it's important for our country uh john lott where should folks go they want to learn more about you and your work well they go to our website at crimeresearch.org crimeresearch.org Great. Appreciate it. John, thank you so much for your time, for your expertise and uh, for your patriotic work, all you do to defend the Constitution and to defend uh, regular citizens in this country. Thank you. Well, thank you for being there. It's, it's good to see you back on the air. You bet. Thank you. Folks, I want to encourage you to exercise your Second Amendment rights. Uh, own a firearm. Know how to use it responsibly. Uh, it's part of being a free and patriotic citizen of this country. And uh, thank you for watching the show.